0: Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. Throughout
1: the years, Quincy has seen its share of tragic events. Large fires, tornadoes, and floods are just a few examples. But since the St. Francis School Fire in 1899, the community has been fortunate that an event hadn't occurred with a large loss of life. On November 19, 1996, that's unfortunately changed the baldwin field airport accident next here on wild quincy
0: now here's your host chris ketters and travis hoffman
1: After a little bit of a hiatus, we are back for another episode of Wild Quincy. Uh, Travis, we had to take a little bit of time off, first of all, because it's the holidays. Happy holidays for everybody. Happy New Year. yes, Yeah. But secondly, we needed a little extra time to prepare for this big episode that we got coming up today. We'll tell you the details about that coming up in just a few minutes. But Travis, I'm so excited, as always, when we get a new Patreon member.
0: Boy, it just feels good. It's like a Christmas email every time one of those pops in. Yeah, we are excited to welcome Ashley Hastings at the eight-dollar Kelly salad bar level. Uh, we actually I had a nice conversation with uh, with Ashley over chat or over the messages in Patreon, and she alluded to our bluegrass conversation that we've kind of been <laughs> can, you know dancing around. And she happens uh, to have grown up on the stuff, Chris, and family and friends. And she is somewhat of royalty. She is the last Cahoka Bluegrass Festival queen. Queen? I mean, you know, I'm not saying, while well, Quincy's a big deal, but when you have royalty that uh, supports it, that's, that's saying something good. If Ashley comes to our next
1: Patreon outing, do we require that she wears the tiara? Oh, is there a tiara? I hope so. <laughs> we might need to think about that. So we'll figure this out, Ashley. She's like off. she's like she'll she's not gonna be a Patreon member anymore. Anyway. <laughs> and she's gone. <laughs> and she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> now thanks thank you so much Ashley we appreciate yes, it very much so. And all of our Patreon members yeah you can do that check out uh, patreon.com/wildquincy a few bucks a month gets you all the access you you know it's so neat Travis we've done like 26 episodes now uh here on uh, the Wild Quincy side of things we have 26 episodes waiting for you on Patreon
0: Multiply that by 2 yeah and then you're that's what you got a whole nother season basically just waiting for you So
1: check that out patreon .com/wildquincy. Uh Travis you've been doing some work too I heard. We may have this uh this this thing they call Instagram now is that right?
0: Oh the, the kids love it Chris. The kids <laughs> love it. Yeah, we are on Instagram. I finally finally bit the bullet and uh, and made the account. Check us out. We're Wild Quincy Podcast. You know, if you know Instagram, you know how to find us based on that information. There's also a link on wildquincy.com. We've got some fun stuff. Uh, we're we're throwing I'm throwing some loosey goosey references to things we talk about on the show. Not necessarily uh, exactly all the stories, but some ancillary goodies that uh, you can only find there. So uh, go check it out. It's gonna be fun, I think.
1: And um, I'm guessing maybe uh, Travis. A couple days ago, you showed me some old pictures from us oh, when we were little boy. kids. Maybe maybe those will pop up on Instagram at some.
0: Point They'll like. be making an appearance. Maybe not just exclusive to Instagram, but we'll get a few that are that are just exclusive Instagram shots. Yeah. So
1: well, trust me, we are as cute as a button. You'll want boy. To what happened? What happened? <laughs> the hair. The is like, what happened. There's
0: that meme like how things started and how they're going yeah I mean and we might have to throw one of those up on Facebook we,
1: we, we got to do a recreation picture that's what we got to do yes yes it's almost you have to yeah
0: we'll do that
1: speaking of other cool new things uh, we have done some improving to our phone system and uh, Travis you have that handy dandy number in front of you but before you announce that number uh, not only can you now call that number but if you want to maybe not use your voice and want to use your thumbs instead now Travis you can text us at that number
0: send us thumb thing (laughs) yes absolutely send us a voicemail or a text at 612-666-9453 we are longing for your call. we used to just harass you to send uh, bumpers saying you're listening which you still can Absolutely. but we just we just want you to give us some comments give us talk to us text us tell us where we're crazy tell us where we're doing the right thing tell us where we're doing the wrong thing. It's better than talking to a wall. And, yeah, and if
1: you uh, do that and uh, say it's something that we think might need to go on, you we'll, we might hear your own recording here on Wild Quincy as uh, we'll uh, play some of those back. So uh, make sure to give us a call at that number. And one more time, Travis?
0: 612-666-9453. That's 612-666-WILD.
1: If you got your phone sitting right next to you, just go ahead and text it now and say hi. Let's just go that route. Just tell yeah. us hi. Just, you well, know, into the phone. Yeah, We'll start slow. Tell us where you're at. Say hi. Say, you guys are awesome. It, whatever. But yeah, do that. So uh, again, check that out. Uh, and uh, we appreciate any feedback. But Travis, it is time for the
0: question of the day. All right. I'm ready. I'm coming in blind. So we'll see what happens. The question of the day is this. What is the oldest bank
1: that is still in existence today? Mm. I'm going to give you some options in alphabetical order you have First Bankers Trust, Mercantile Bank, State Street Bank or Town and Country Bank. So again the question is
0: this. Chris that that's false because none of those are, are are the answer. The actual answer is the River Bank. In existence today, the River Bank the river bank along the Mississippi River, the levee. <laughs> Okay, I'm being a smart, I'm being a yeah, jerk. Go ahead, go ahead and repeat the options.
1: Chris. Yeah, yeah. you you. You're like, oh my gosh, I got to find another question of the day.
0: You shot me a look like, oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> I'm like, well, let's stop. We're done. Let me find another question. No, the question is this. Oldest bank that is still in existence today? Is it First Bankers Trust, Mercantile Bank, State Street Bank, or Town & Country Bank? Travis, we'll have the answer to that question coming up at the end of this episode
0: yeah we're gonna shift gears though Chris in a few moments we'll be talking to former news reporter Matt Schmidt who has first-hand knowledge about the 1996 tragedy at Baldwin Field
1: November 19th 1996 started out like any other day for the two-man flight crew of United Express flight 5925 as they prepared for their day in the air The one-day flight would start in Quincy and make an eight-leg journey, lasting a little over five and a half hours in the air before returning to Quincy. However, today's trip for the crew would not be without its issues. After the fifth leg of the trip, a mechanical problem forced the crew to change aircraft at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. The plane, a Beechcraft 1900C, was built in 1989 and could hold 19 people. The twin-turbo-propeller plane had just over 18,000 total hours on its airframe and was owned by the Raytheon Aircraft Credit Association. After a 2 hour and 45 minute delay to switch to a new plane, the crew and its passengers were back in the air heading for Burlington, Iowa, arriving at 4.25pm. In just 12 minutes, the two crew members and its 10 passengers departed Burlington and started the last leg of its trip to Quincy. The pilot, a 30-year-old female, was hired by Great Lakes Aviation in September of 1993 and had accumulated over 4,000 hours of flight time in her career, 700 of those which were in the plane that she commanded this evening. The first officer on the flight was a 24-year-old male who was hired by the same company in September of 1995. He had 1,950 hours of flight time in which nearly half of those hours were as second in command of this type of plane. In just 17 minutes after departing Burlington, the pilot stated over the radio that the airplane was just 30 miles away from Quincy and would be landing on runway 13. Since its first flight in 1947, Baldwin Field has seen countless flights coming in and out of the city-owned airport. The three runway airport is referred to as an uncontrolled airport. This means that there is not an operating control tower at the facility. In most situations, traffic at the airport is light, but pilots are responsible for notifying all other pilots in the area of their intentions when taking off and landing at the airport. On the late afternoon of November 19th, the traffic was heavier than normal. That was evident at 4.55 as a female voice comes over the radio stating that King Air 1127D was taxiing out to the runway. A minute later, a second plane, a small four-seat Piper Cherokee, also makes an announcement on the radio stating he was also taxiing to the same runway. The first plane, a two-turbo engine beach aircraft, can hold up to nine passengers but was flying light that night with only the pilot and a passenger. The pilot, a 63-year-old male, was a retired commercial pilot. He spent 27 years with the TWA as a pilot. He was a former pilot in the U.S. Air Force Reserves and was currently a part-time flight instructor at Scott Air Force Base. The pilot had an impressive 25,000 hours of flight time, but only 22 hours in the plane he was commanding this evening. His passenger was actually a bit more than a passenger. The 34-year-old female was employed by Flight Safety International Airline Center in St. Louis and was a part-time flight instructor who primarily taught orientation and indoctrination classes to customers in the airline field. She held a commercial pilot certificate and could fly single and multi-engine planes. On this day, her logbook indicated that she had 1,462 flying hours, and although she was not considered the pilot on this flight. She was being trained by the pilot and believed to be in control of the aircraft. According to an acquaintance of hers, this was her first time flying the King Air. It's now 4.56 and the captain of the United Express flight once again made an announcement on the radio stating that they were only 10 miles away from the airport. Three minutes later, at 4.59, the female occupant of the King Air flight announced they would, quote, holding short of Runway 4 and that they would be, quote, taking the Runway 4 departure. Thirty seconds later, the United Express pilot comes on the radio to announce that they are only six miles out and on final approach to the airport. The United Express pilot hearing the radio traffic calls out to the other aircraft asking if they're going to hold position on runway four or if they're going to take off. The King Air, who is first in line on the runway that intersects United Express's incoming runway, does not respond to the United Express's question. However, the Cherokee pilot responded that he is holding for departure. The United Express pilot replies back quickly saying, quote, okay, we'll get through your intersection in just a second. We appreciate that. That was the last radio transmission made. With only 13 seconds left before United Express touchdown, the King Air revs up its engine and begins to take off down the runway. At 5 p.m. and 59 seconds on November 19th, the United Express plane makes its final touchdown of the day, but it only takes a few seconds after the touchdown to see the inevitable disaster waiting for them. As they look down the runway and to the right, they see the King Air speeding down the intersecting runway. The United Express pilot throws the plane in full reverse thrusters and applies the brake hard, creating skid marks down the runway in doing so. But it was too late. The King Air hits the United Express plane creating a huge ball of fire and pushing both planes off into the grass. One airport-employed pilot and two United Express employees were the first to arrive at the crash site to see the King Air fully engulfed in fire and the United Express plane burning on the right side with black smoke pouring out. The airport pilot could not see the interior of the cabin through the passenger windows because the cabin appeared to be filled with dark smoke. The pilot quickly ran to the left side of the plane to see the captain's head and arm protruding from the window. She yelled to the pilots asking them to get the door open. But as the pilots tried to open the door, it would not budge. At 5.01pm, not a minute after the collision, a call was made to the Quincy Fire Department 911 dispatch, notifying them of the crash. Two engines and seven firefighters were dispatched a minute later and arrived at the airport, 10 miles away, in only 12 minutes. They were able to put out the fire in only 10 minutes, but it was too late. Ten passengers and two crew members of United Express Flight 5925 and two crew members of the King Air perished, creating the worst tragedy in Baldwin Field history.
0: Not all parts of Quincy's past can be fun to talk about. There are tragedies. This is obviously one of them. Because of that, we don't want to... Just speculate. We want to talk to someone who was actually there at this event, who has firsthand knowledge and experience. And for that, we turn to Matt Schmidt, current development director at the Salvation Army. Matt's been a staple in the Quincy, Illinois news landscape, both with KQa for eleven years and Wgem for seven years. Matt Schmidt, welcome to Wild Quincy.
1: Thank you. Thanks for asking me to be a part of this. We've talked to you a little bit about uh, kind of the background before we got started here and gave some people, give people kind of information on the things leading up to it. But uh, your your turn here kind of jumps in right after all this happens. And let's start out by just kind of getting an overview. of Give us a feel for that night. Give us give us exactly what, uh, what happened in your world uh, leading up and, and, and leading into that night. Yeah, by, by far and away, this
2: this was the biggest news event of my uh, my career in Quincy. I had only started KHQA in June of uh, of that year of 96. Uh, and as a new reporter, getting used to things, you were usually there late. Uh, sometimes you had to be live on the 6, and you had to do recuts for the 10 o'clock news or the morning news. So rarely were you out of there by 6, 630. But this night, I remember... Uh, I was home before five. <laughs> Everything was done. There was nothing else to do. They said, go. They didn't need me for the five and six that night. Uh, so I was home, but I wasn't home but a couple minutes and the phone rang. And uh, for some reason, I didn't pick it up on the first time because back then it wasn't cell phones. They, didn't, <laughs> they couldn't just get you. You had to right. get the landlines. But uh, so finally, I picked it up on the second try. I was like, yeah. And they're like, you need to get back. We've had a plane crash at Quincy. Wow. And your first thought is, are you kidding me? You know, but like, no, you got to get in here now. Luckily, I only live five blocks from the station at the time. But. Uh, KHQA at the time was on the 10th floor of the WCU building. So you had to ride the elevator up. You had to get your equipment and you had to ride the elevator down. Then you had to walk down the basement to the parking garage to get the car. I mean, it, this was not a in and out process. <laughs> um, so uh, by the time I'm doing all this uh, and getting back to the station, uh, our anchor at the time, Brian Bolter and a, and a studio operator, uh, Diane Tooley, were sent out just to see what, just get out there. and um, And they grabbed a camera and they'd already hit the road they actually got to the airport before the fire department did, because at that wow. time, uh, as you've mentioned there, there's no, um, unseen firefighters. Uh, so they were on the tarmac. And those the video you see when the firefighters are finally dousing the airplanes with the foam and stuff, um, that comes from Diane being right there. So, uh, KHQA was first on the scene first to report what was going on from there. So by the time I got there around, uh, I would say it was probably by six. Um, uh, Brian was already doing the main reporting. And then I started to pick, pick up the auxiliary stuff as people came in, but obviously it was, it was chaos for those first few hours as people tried to grasp what had just happened.
1: Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up Brian. Uh, we, we were talking a while back, we were doing uh Uh, an episode on on quincy on tv and and one of the things was uh chad Douglas actually gave us a, a, a vhs tape from a morning show that he did from back in the flood of 93 when uh cbs morning show was in quincy and uh ironically they were looking back on the on the different uh, anchors that were in KHQA because it was a big anniversary that year. And he was interviewed on that VHS tape talking about how significant the airplane crash was. And, And I'm sure it was no different for me, for you from that perspective is that, that had to be especially for it sounded like what 6 months you were there at KHQA so uh, you were you're a young reporter a young you know employee at the station and and that had to have been kind of a shell shock for you
2: oh yeah i mean it definitely uh, the biggest uh, tragedy of any sort that i had covered to that point i'd been in southern Illinois for a couple of years and uh, that was a, as a producer there so i was never out in the field much so this was the first field experience of anything of this magnitude that uh that i can remember but uh so yeah you get to the scene and and granted this is november so it's pretty dark already at six o'clock uh even with the airport runway lights uh and if and if you can picture where the runway crosses so if you've ever been to maybe to the the restaurant out at at baldwin field uh you can see that intersection from right there so it's not terribly far uh from the main terminal um but yet by that time you know the, the the flames are out it's dark and there's just there was not much to see in the dark so uh, a lot of it was just grasping what was happening and so i remember my job was just stay there all night because I, I don't remember there being official news conferences but i think there were updates throughout the night like oh, okay 1 30 a.m we'll, we'll try to update you at 3 we'll try to update you so you just had to be ready for the six uh, o'clock uh, morning show
1: i mean obviously there was there was some chaos going on but it was by the time that you know and again we talked uh i just when I explained it earlier that, you know, within 10 minutes of the fire department getting there, the fire was already out. I mean, so were you getting updates pretty quickly uh, being out there or was it something that it seemed like it took a while? And then secondly, who was doing the updates to begin with? It's a city airport. So the city was in charge and the airport manager at the
2: time, I can't think of his name offhand. I don't want to say the one that comes to mind in case it's not correct, but I do remember uh, the gentleman had, had a speech impediment. Um, and so in an event like this, he probably wasn't who he wanted front and center mm-hmm. updating yeah. news so but yeah. so a couple times he tried to but i know the, the city by the morning show they somebody else had, had taken over that that duty um but even then i think it had gone beyond the airport manager's control of of what was going on so um uh some of the first firefighters i believe uh came from um coatsburg and they were rural volunteer firefighters i think right. were were out there early. So you had a lot of those guys there. And so it was chaos. Who, who was in charge? Who was going to coordinate stuff? I know the core. I remember the corner being there, uh, and, and they had one request to the media and that was, you know, when families start to arrive, give them space. Yeah. Well, we also have at this time, you start having St. Louis media's come up now. So by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, they, those trucks were rolling in national media started coming in overnight. So did take long for the local guys starting to hit the periphery but that's one thing i remember that we did as soon as you saw people coming in being ushered in and that you knew were relatives is we turned the cameras off pointing the other way fortunately they didn't get the same uh, respect from the other cameras but i mm. i know uh, being local that was one thing we always try to abide by is hey well if you've asked us to do something we'll do it and and yeah. um, so yeah. so i do remember that night just sitting in the background and just watching family member after family member being ushered to quiet areas and then who knows what they were being told
1: let's talk about the next day were you there when the ntsb showed up and arrived at the airport
2: yeah i believe i can't give you an exact sure. time but i remember by the next morning they they were on scene um uh, that, that's what a lot of them were waiting for a lot of the local officials were just you know contain and let let the feds yeah. you know take do their job when they get in the next day was uh was just about what happened finding out what happened trying to get some answers because honestly at the time uh I was under the impression this was a this was a straight collision at the intersection and boom lives were lost then you come to find out oh no th- this was this was just a a fender bender basically mm-hmm. I mean they the, these planes right. had swerved and bumped and, and there was moderate damage so to speak that everybody survived the crash that that was probably the, the the hardest thing to grasp was they all survived the initial crash uh because then I I don't know what time if it was overnight or the next day uh one of the people who was first on scene to try to help a, a pilot out there who who I knew so he was telling us what happened and and when I heard him say that oh no when we got out there the uh, the female pilot was poking out the window help us mm-hmm. get us out of here because apparently the door's jammed so they can't get oh out the main god. door and so basically they all they died of smoke inhalation and burns uh, it was uh, it was hard to understand that
0: Th- that sense of tragedy is just so hard to process i mean god what a what a sense of helplessness and i can't even imagine being one of the first people there responding to that that's
2: yeah i think it was it was a pilot words. and then it was one of another ue pilot who also flew, flew uh, legs of the uh, route that came out to help and they couldn't do anything from the outside. And then finally the heat got so intense they had to back off. But to know that
1: you can't do anything. They're, they're there, they're yeah, alive and, and and you can't do a thing about it. I want to dig into that a little bit. And again, going back to the to NTSB report, a couple of things that I caught out of that section was, that, first of all, you were right. There was something weird about this, this aircraft in that they had, the way the door was set up, it had a, a, like a, a handle like you normally have. But however, this airplane in particular has a button that you have to push in conjunction with the handle and what ends up happening is that the first pilot was not familiar with that type of airplane so he was trying just to pull the door and pull the door and he didn't realize that there was a button finally the united express pilot was coming up because he was the pilot him and another pilot were the ones that were actually supposed to be taking the plane from quincy and so that pilot comes up and realizes it pushes the button and he still can't get the door open and and i mean we'll get into more detail later on this probably on the patreon side but there was a very big speculation that that this this door is actually being opened up by these wires that are connected to these bolts that go into the side of the of the uh the airplane itself but if there's like they were saying that if there's like a quarter inch of slack in this of this rope or wire that goes around it won't open the door and so that's what it came down to and then also it was reported that when they did find the bodies that the co-pilot or the second uh, the first officer i guess is what they refer to him as he was in front of the door he was trying to get it open from the inside as well so they just couldn't get it open and then i guess i think the right side of the plane was the side that got damaged and hit by the king airplane and then so they tried getting into the left side and the left side evidently they never never tried to open the other emergency exits up as far as i does that sound familiar to you matt no that that's yeah that, so
2: yeah because i remember there was there was a lot of um, legal parts with the makers of that door were upset yeah. with the ntsb report saying no it wasn't our fault because it, it, any it should have withstood some damage it should have withstood moderate impact where the ntsb made it sound like the, the collision was too much or that the door didn't operate that uh, something jammed there yeah uh, but the, but obviously but but yeah, that was another big thing too. Nobody nobody used all the, there was more exits to use and they mm. weren't utilized or they didn't get the time to utilize yeah. it. So maybe if they'd gone to that left wing exit yeah. right away, a few of them might've been able to, yeah. to get out. But they, obviously you think I came in that door, I should get out that door. Right. So I think your instinct is
1: get us out this door.
0: In that heat of the moment, I think you know clarity kind of goes out the window and, and you're just desperately trying
1: well and and not only that but we've i'm sure we've all been on planes before and i i've been in that love that that aisle that's you know the emergency exit aisle and you, when you're doing that you're always like well nothing's ever really going to happen i mean and a lot of people i mean i i do read the read the thing i mean just so i, I have an understanding but you never like travis said you never expect that you're going to have to actually do something in that situation so and then we're yeah. not totally sure and i i think and correct me if i'm wrong but they're not they didn't have uh assigned seats on this plane so they weren't exactly aware i believe if they knew anybody was in the emergency exit lanes to begin with Uh, does that ring a bell well if it's it's like any typical small commuter plane
2: you kind of pick your own seats i mean i I, at that particular plane i had never ridden in but in some of the the current models that they fly out of quincy i mean they're they're small planes and and once again your first thought that's the door i came in that's the one to go out and you don't pay attention that, oh, there's something over here that might get us out. I mean, yeah. and, and they ran out of time. I mean, yeah, they survived the crash, but the the, the toxic smoke and everything, I mean, it it took them fast. And so there wasn't time to probably think.
1: Yeah. And those pilots, when they came up, I think we talked about it in the in the little intro that I did, but I, I believe it was less than a minute for them to get to the plane after the crash. And they already noticed that they couldn't see into the passenger windows because it was completely full of smoke in the in the cabin itself. So, I mean, in the fireball was, and we, I, there was a documentary we brought up and we probably had this posted in our, our show notes that talked about the huge explosion that happened and the huge fireball that occurred right as the impact happened. But that does bring up a question, and Matt, I don't know if you had the opportunity to to think about this or have any questions that were being made at that time, but one of the things they discussed was that the um, there was no on-site fire department at the airport, and it wasn't required. FAA regulations at the time does not require them to be an active fire department unless you have more than 30 passengers coming in on a plane. And this, obviously, we at that time, Quincy didn't have a 30-passenger-plus plane coming in, so there was no need. Was there any thoughts, though, that things could have been different if there would have been a fire department at the airport?
2: Well, in the report, I believe it came out that they thought if if, if firefighters had been on scene, there was a good chance lives could have been saved. But again, if your first reaction is I'm going to save somebody by going through the door, you're going to spend a few minutes trying to get yeah. that particular door open. And if and if the smoke's coming in, uh, I don't know, I even if somebody had been there, you, you're like you said, you, from moment of uh, impact to uh, death time, you're looking at a minute or less. I mean. You still, you got to get your trucks there. You got to get your equipment there. You got to get everything off the thing. I, I
0: you don't think. Yeah, you could argue hypotheticals till you're blue in the right. face, but it in such a catastrophic event like that, regardless how much you're trained, you're trained on something like that. I, it's. I hope I'm never in that situation. Right. No, that that's horrible. Yeah. Nah.
1: So let's let's move on. So you, like I said, you were there for practically a week. Was there any other details of things that happened in that time frame that you, that kind of stick out in your mind? Oh, I still remember to this day that getting the up close look at the crash
2: site. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it was two days later. So it's probably that Thursday where they finally took all the media to get pictures right up close to it, and um, so that was it was different. Uh, you know, you you're, one aspect of it. You're trying to, to report the events and another one, you, you see these utility flags stuck in the, in, in the debris. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, I'm, you know, at the time, one of my 21 years old, a new <laughs> reporter thinking what, what's with the flags. And then finally right. one of the officials says that's where we covered the bodies. So mm-hmm. each flag represented where the bodies were um, in relation to the debris. The other thing is you, you, you have, a pretty decent size UE commuter plane and the the other plane hit. And the only thing you see is, is the nose of the, of the United express. You see the tail and you see one wing and and a propeller and everything else is ash. I mean, just charred to the ground. And and so that gives you an idea of how hot this fire was, how much it burned. There was just the fuselage is gone. I mean, there's nothing there. So, uh, so if you've seen those pictures of, of overhead or close up, it's just, it's hard to believe that the plane was there. I mean, it's just obliterated. It was just a, a charred ground, and and like I say, those utility flags. I still that always is the one thing. Every re- if you if you just come up to me and ask about the crash, name the first thing you remember.
1: I'm going to tell you it's those flags. Yeah, that that has to be. I mean, just uh just the process that that whole thought of of seeing that coming up, and, and then the obviously it was interesting in the report that it, they talked about that there was actually a char line for where the grass caught on fire but it really didn't expand out very far it it seemed like it was i mean it was i mean obviously it was a large area because of the two planes but beyond that it didn't was it right that it didn't expand much outside of that area no i mean if you would think
2: if a fire got through the grass and kept going no you're pretty much you're right at the it happened right at the intersection and they skidded for a ways but i mean i think they still skidded on the pavement so um, you were in the—I won't even give directions—but you were in one corner of the intersection there, uh, and it was just the width, probably, of the plane. You had a nice little circle around it, and
1: and that's where everything was just—you know—burned to nothing. So and I guess I kind of want to change the uh, pass a little bit because you mentioned the uh, national media coverage, and again, you're a 21-year-old reporter, and and I guess you're you're working around these other big networks was there any kind of like moments where you're like holy cow this is such and such that's here next to me that's reporting on this
2: yeah i remember at the time because uh, you know you want to watch what the national news was and, and being a cbs station you want to see who's there from cbs and i couldn't tell you at this moment who, who, who <laughs> the reporter that got assigned to it but uh um but at the time you're you're thinking well what is this going to play obviously cnn was there but it, i can't I want to say it probably led national newscast the next night, or it was pretty high up there, but every major network uh, was represented uh, cable news, obviously CNN had taken off and the other news entities. Hadn't really grabbed hold right. yet, but uh, but St. Louis was there. We were close enough in proximity. So they were there with uh, all of their media people. So, uh, uh, there was there was a huge so when they had news conferences, you
1: had quite a few people uh, in attendance. So what was the final steps in in like kind of getting to the end of the road for you guys? It happened and you had a few days. But I mean, you said you were there for a week. So what was kind of leading on that? Was it just more press conferences and things like that going on throughout the week? All day. I remember. So after
2: the morning show uh, on Wednesday morning, I think I did go home for a little bit, grabbed a nap and then had to get back in the afternoon, do some coverage for the evening shows. Uh, Thursday, the big thing obviously was going out and seeing the site and reporting on that. And then Friday was kind of just the wrap up of things. I think a lot of the national tension obviously had gone away after the first day or two. So Friday was just kind of things are settling down. I don't think, the, I can't remember when the airport reopened, but I think it was at least a week before it was uh, able for flights to come in again. After that, I, so I only spent the one night. I, I was able to go home after the rest <laughs> of the nights, but every, but every every story was nothing but, but uh, uh, airplane, you know, a disaster for that whole week. And and I, I wish, I don't even know if I had that newscast saved anywhere, but I, I'd be interested to go back to see what all the, uh, the additional stories that we covered yeah. besides crash. Cause anytime you have a, a major event, there's always those auxiliary things of, you know, how's it affecting this? How's it affecting that? And so forth. So I'm sure uh, it always takes a while to to get back into the mundane stories again, but um. um and we did the, you know, I, we, I remember, you know, obviously, you always do the anniversary stories. You mm-hmm. can't be in news without anniversary yeah. stories. Um, but after one or two years, I, I don't remember it ever being a big deal. And and I, I don't hear people talk about it like, like you think they would. Like, oh,
1: man, can you believe it? it's been 25 years since, right. the, since the plane crash? You had to think about There's it. There's just a lot to unload and, and I, with this. And, and we're definitely going to dig into it more uh, in our Patreon. But, um, you know, Matt, is there is there any other specifics with the, the accident itself? Is there anything else that kind of sticks out that, uh, that you wanted to hit up on? Well, I do I do remember following up on the accident. So the NTSB hearings uh, were held, I believe, in
2: July of ninety seven. So the final report came out uh, several months later. And so I um, the station wanted to fly me out there, so I flew commercial from St. Louis out there. And 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 the where,
0: thing- where was where was the, uh, the was it happening again? I don't know. If we can it was remember. in
2: Washington D.C. At, at the I assume the NTSB headquarters. So I'm heading out there um, uh, with a battery pack, and and this is pre. 9 nine eleven. So I'm going through security, and and these are big belt battery packs, and so no one ever told me that when it goes through the uh, the the X-ray scanner that they look like little bitty bombs. Uh, going oh no. <laughs> So the <laughs> so the, the the security guy is stopping. He's like, what is this? And I had to explain, well, this is a battery backpack for a TV. And then he's like, oh, okay. And he moved on. But he's like, he told me, he's like, you know what they look like, though. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. wow. So I got through that and, and flew to DC and, and I had to rent my own car. Well, you're technically not supposed you have to be 25 to rent a car. And here, right. I, but I'm 22 right. now. And I was like, <laughs> so luckily got that taken care of. Then I had to drive through D.C. I don't know if you've ever driven through D.C., but this is not an easy town to navigate. So I remember trying to find, you know, everything I think is letters and stuff. And so I'm trying to find where this building is. And as I'm driving down one street, I know I glanced to my left. and I'm like, oh, the White House. Cool. <laughs> but you know, I keep on driving through. So so there's a lot going on and processing. And then you go through these hearings. And 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 really, if, you, if you've seen um, uh, the movie about... Um, uh, the crash on the Hudson Sully, and then mm-hmm. have the, they have yeah. the hearings. It, it is kind of set up that way where where the uh, NTSB's is up, uh, up on the dais and looking down at everybody and giving their reports. And then I had the opportunity after that was done to go to the CBS National Affiliate Office. So I remember going there because I had to put my story together, and then I was going to do a satellite feedback for KHQA that night. And and there and you talked about oh, who did you, who did you see at the airport? I don't remember at the airport, but I remember at, at this place. It's like oh Byron Pitts and I don't know <laughs> Byron Pitts, but i was like <laughs> right, right, it's right right here and you know and so I'm like I'm putting stories together and these guys are right over here. Wow! So, um, so that part I remember the experience of wow here I am in Washington D.C. covering this big story and and reporting back to to Quincy and so that part it was it, it was pretty memorable.
1: Well, Matt, we have we really appreciate you coming on. Talk. I know this hasn't been a, a, a great subject to, to really talk about. It's a, obviously not an upbeat one that we talk about a lot, but uh, we really appreciate having you on. Hey, thanks, guys. Anytime, and uh, hopefully uh, next
2: time we'll have happier things to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Thanks again to Matt Schmidt for uh, visiting with us today on Wild Quincy. Travis, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't do a few things before we wrapped up this episode. And one of those very important things I think we need to address is the fact of who those victims were in this uh, accident at Baldwin field. And I believe you have that list in front of you.
0: All right, Chris, the list of those uh, unfortunate souls who lost their lives that day goes as follows. Jason Berger, James Bevel, Laura Winkleman Brooks, Mike Brook, Leonard Carlson, Mark DeSaul, Larry Downing, Catherine Gahey, Debbie Heffenbauer, William Johnson, Darren McCombs, Dennis Reed, Neil Reinwald, and Edward Schneckenberger. You know, if, if we remember anything, let's be sure we don't forget the loss of human life that happened on that day, Chris.
1: Yeah, Travis, and that actually brings up an interesting uh, thought that you had uh, after after we've uh, started first researching this. And, and I think it's I think it was you that brought up the question of, what about a memorial? And and we both got to looking after you brought that up, and it doesn't look like there's much of a memorial at, at the airport. What, what's your thoughts on that?
0: You're right, Chris. The only thing that I was able to locate is that there's a plaque on, uh, I think I think it's going towards the bathrooms down the staircase where it's a memorial to just Darren McCombs. I believe he was the co-pilot of uh, one of the, the, the flights. And it, it doesn't mention the crash, but more just a tribute to him, probably from a friend. But from the actual list of passengers and the, the event itself that took place, to my the best of my knowledge, there isn't anything. I'd love to be proven wrong. What's your thoughts on having a memorial of, like, a tragic event at, at an airport. Do you think that's just a faux pas, Chris? I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, I got to looking it's some other airplane accidents uh, throughout the United States, just doing a search of like memorials. And obviously the first ones you're going to come up with are none other than the nine 11 memorials. Um, You know, the Pennsylvania one and things like that, obviously New York city, but there was some incidences where uh, there were accidents did occur that had small numbers. And that was my first thought was, well, you know, it wasn't a hundred or 200 people that perished in this accident. It was actually just 14. I mean, I hate to say just, because, I mean, it's still 14. Any
0: human loss is, yeah,
1: it's huge. But when you have those situations, obviously when you have a larger airplane crash, it's going to happen. However, Travis, I did come across different uh, locations that actually did have memorials for even as small as six people passing away. So I do question a little bit. Uh, uh, now, one of the things I wonder about, and I, I guess I get it, um, because you know we've talked about this, we've both flown out of Quincy before, right? You don't want to be thinking about airplane crashes no. when you're getting on an airplane absolutely, but on the other hand, I think there's some ways that that and this is still something doable and and I you know I I don't want to get a soapbox right now, but I think this is a great opportunity to do something along those lines. Quincy is a a welcoming town they are they've always been welcoming to anybody and that includes guests or people that just come to visit i don't see how not uh, recognizing and remembering those lives that were lost even though they weren't local that the city of Quincy doesn't do something, or or some organization doesn't do something to uh, to remember those those that died in the plane crash. I, what's your thoughts?
0: I think you struck a a pretty big point there that I, that I hope is just a coincidence and not didn't go into the planning or lack thereof. But none of these people were local. I mean, they were regional. You could say some from Iowa. But there wasn't anybody who lived in Quincy. And I hope, I sure hope that wasn't taken into consideration when something, if something, if the idea came up and it wasn't acted upon. Because, you know, these are still people. And the fact that people died there, it shouldn't matter where they're from. I think if it was a plane full of Quincyans, you know, God willing that never happens, I think there'd be something there, to be honest with you.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Kind of playing a little bit of a devil's advocate here. If it wasn't an unfortunate event where it was like a ton of Quincy people that it happened to, there would be a a force involved. There would be a backing force to make sure that something like that happened. You're not getting that because, again, all the family members of these lost lives are not local. So there's not going to be that some some entity that is pushing. So I guess if I want to, again, get on that soapbox for a minute, I think – uh, you know, as listeners of this podcast, as hopefully fans of this podcast, maybe it's the time to have a discussion about that. And I, I don't want to try getting too pushing this, but you know, I, I think this is something, especially with it being the 25th anniversary just a few months ago. Right. Uh, this is the time. And I think, you know, Quincy has always, as I said, been a welcoming community, and this shouldn't be no different. And I get it that you don't want to have. Something as you're going through, you know, uh, the inspection stuff when you're getting all your bags checked and all that. I can get it that you don't want to think about that, but you know, there's a good opportunity. Uh, Baldwin Field is a very large facility. It would be very easy to put a limestone uh, memorial, something in simple a and driveway. elegant that's
0: not right, maybe in in a heavy, a heavy traffic area that just yep. that's just somewhere for. Say say families came back to grieve. I mean, there's, there's nowhere to do that. You can't actually get to where it happened because it is yeah. on the runway. So why not pick an off-the-beaten-path? There's a lot of nice little nooks and crannies. It's very pretty mm-hmm. out there. Just some, some kind of... You know, just just note that, you know, this this happened. You know, we we remember these people, even if they didn't call Quincy their home.
1: I think, Travis, we're going to do our part in trying to see if we can make something like this happen. I, I mean, again, we're just here to tell the story. But, I, you know, this one hit us and especially it hit me reading. And I told you, Travis, I. I started reading the NTSB report at like eleven thirty one one night. And finally, like around two o'clock, I was like, I better go to bed. Right. <laughs> uh, because it was so uh, there's so much information and so much that I didn't know uh, from back in that time frame. So, again, we're just a podcast, but we're going to do our part. And we, we hope that you can help us and do your part as well. You know, mention to it, if you know, your uh, city council person in, at Quincy, if you, if you know the mayor, uh, you know, anybody that, you know, might might have some influence, you know, might mention to it. It might be the time. And it is the time for that matter to go ahead and let's do that. And let's get a, some sort of memorial in place and let's do what Quincy does best and, and uh, you know, welcoming and, and remembering those that we've lost. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox, Travis.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely, Chris. You know, I, I, there's a, a person in Quincy, an older person in Quincy who I had the pleasure of knowing that this person had this mantra that said, I used to sit there and wonder why somebody didn't do something. And that's when I realized I was somebody, Mm -hmm. and with enough people, you know, there used to be this pass the hat mentality that the you know everyday people could accomplish a lot if they pass that hat and they throw it around. Like you look at GoFundMe now these days. I mean, I think it's it's doable, and of course, there may be red tape on weird angles. You know, we're not trying to point fingers, trying to you know not outdo wrongs of anybody but i just think it seems like the right thing to do in my mind let me add one last thing to that you, i think you just may have hit
1: something that i think I, myself would be willing to do and i'm pretty sure you would as well is that maybe we should just have a conversation maybe the first key is 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 some sort of fundraiser like a gofundme or something like that and maybe maybe those questions may need to be asked uh that is it something that could be doable and if so how much would it cost yeah
0: is it feasible and if so what what, what would it take to make that happen
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is if they're if you're listening to us and you hear this, give us a comment. Uh, you could do it on Facebook. You can do it. Uh, you know, if you're a Patreon member, you can do it on Patreon. Give us a thought. You know, give us. Would you support that? Um, would you be willing to donate? Give us. Give us some feedback. And, and honestly, just give us your thoughts because hopefully the right person sees it and sees that you know this is something that's important to the community. Speaking of Patreon, we have so much. We have, of course, a limited time in our regular episodes. I hate the idea of saying, you know, go to Patreon and learn more. But unfortunately, we have to move a lot of the stuff to Patreon. I do want to give you a couple of the little headliners of things that I have to bring up. Because, again, this NTSB report with the radio transcripts is about 112 pages long. Wow. Uh, there's so much information in it. A couple of the, the headliners here I'll just give you. There was an interesting history with the pilot of the King Air plane he had some issues in the past we can t- we'll talk about that on patreon also uh, one of the other things that was talked about in the ntsb report was about how the united express planes which are beach uh, i believe they're beach 1900 cs have known radio issues back in that day oh wow and so that kind of relates to well okay what the transcripts were receiving were transcripts from their black box, from their radio transmissions, from the United Express plane. But does that mean they were getting out to everybody else? So that's a question we're going to talk about. And then finally, one of the big pieces that we're going to talk about on Patreon coming up is that the Raytheon Corporation, uh, they are the ones that own uh, the airplane. And they did a petition to the NTSB after the report was uh, submitted or released, I should say, And there was a lot of questions and a lot of controversy. You could feel they were trying to work their way around, trying not to be sued. Uh, You could feel that to an extent, but there's some good questions in there. And we're going to dig into those a little bit deeper as we uh, get into the Patreon episode. So if you're not a Patreon member, make sure to check that out. But Travis, there are a couple things that we couldn't wait till Patreon because when I read them, it hit me. It hit okay. me hit me pretty hard. Now, the, this is coming from the communications. So you have uh, cockpit communications and you have air-ground communications in the transcripts. So the the cockpit communications is just the communications between, say, the pilot and the first-in-command or the first officer, or maybe it's a, a PA announcement to the people that are on the plane. And then, of course, the air-ground communications is what is supposed to be getting out to all the people. One of the first things, and my... My mind always drifts to to kind of the paranormal aspect, but I think this goes a little bit beyond that. And I, I don't know, maybe you can think of a better word after I say this, Travis, of what this really reflects. But one of the things that happened as this uh, United Express plane was getting ready to depart from Burlington. They only spent 12 minutes on the ground in Burlington. However, at uh, 4.42 p.m., the pilot of the plane actually says the following thing in the cockpit communications. She says, do you smell smoke? Wow. Well, hmm. Then you go on to about, um, it's about 30 seconds later, six, uh, at four forty three, uh, the first officer says, what kind of smoke you smell? And she replies back, I don't know, maybe the light or something. I don't see anything. Y'all you got your circuit breakers in the reason why this hits me. She is smelling smoke. Well, that'd be a 16, 17 minutes before the accident occurs.
0: Wow, it's kind of a dark, darkly prophetic of uh, yeah, the yeah. sad, tragic ending. I,
1: I I don't even know how to explain that, and maybe maybe it doesn't need to be explained. I didn't take it as a as a sign of maybe some issues with the plane. That's that's not the pathway I was thinking. I was like you said, I think it's more along the lines of something that it's just kind of awestruck when I'm reading this report and i reading these transcripts and I'm like, holy cow, she smelled smoke 17 minutes before the accident happened and, and it has nothing to do with the accident. So is it a phantom smell or something like that? Could
0: it be just a seemingly innocent little circuit that doesn't have an sure. effect. I mean, you, you don't know. You it don't could know. Be. You know, a butterfly flaps its wings in Africa, and you know, and you've heard right. that whole that whole saying. And now we're not speculating. that it, it was an issue with the plane, but I mean, they didn't have a lot of evidence at the end because of the horrible, horrific fires yeah. to really do yeah. that level of investigation. So it just, it just alone, just that darkly prophetic phrase, "Do you smell smoke?" It's just.
1: Wow. And chances, you know, you could, this could happen. God forbid it ever did. It could happen 10,000 times again. And that situation would never happen to where, you know, what's the chances of them smelling smoke in general? So, so that was something that really just just hit me. It it hit me in a weird spot. Another thing that hit me and this, uh, I'm actually having a hard time even even talking about it right now, is the accident happened right at uh, at 5 p.m. It's just actually a few minutes right after 5 p.m. that it happened. Five minutes before, as they're getting ready, they're actually about, I believe they're about six miles out from Quincy at this point in time. The pilot says something else. And I, I, I mean, this is something that it's I, I'm Travis I'm going to let you do the explaining I'm just going to read it it's a uh, 454 actually 454 and 56 seconds the pilot says look at that sunset man that's gorgeous
0: hmm. it's such a juxtaposition of just taking that that moment to appreciate just a natural wonder like that when that turns out to be one of the last things you observe and they say there's, you should always take more time to stop and smell the roses. and If that doesn't put an exclamation point on that phrase, then I don't know what does. That is a look
1: at the unfortunate incident that happened in November of 1996 at Quincy Regional Airport. And we'll have more after this on Wild Quincy. News Channel 10 Live at 5 is the area's only 5 o'clock newscast. Each day, Les Sachs and the area's number one news team gather the top stories of the day to bring them to you first. You'll see the area's most-watched weathercaster, Corey McCluskey
0: with First Weather. Plus, you'll see the latest regional news you won't get anywhere else. WGEM News Channel 10's Live at 5. The only 5 o'clock newscast
1: in the tri-state area. News Channel 10 where more people get their news than any other source Live at 5 Travis it's not a, a, a thrilling uh throwback ad this uh, week however it's right around the time period of what we've been talking about. That ad come, came out in uh, the, about the mid-90s. Uh, and so obviously you had uh, Mr. Les Sachs and uh, also uh, uh, some weather guy on yes. there as well.
0: I wonder whatever happened to that guy. hope, hope he didn't. Mm. I hope he made it's, it. Still doing weather? I, I don't
1: know, <laughs> but that is a look. I, I had to throw this out because Travis, I didn't even really process it when I put the uh, found the ad and, and showed it to you. And most people know this. I worked at WGM just out of high school. Worked there for a little while. I not only did radio stuff, but also that I did uh, camera work. I think we talked about that in the Jennifer Winley episode. That's right. That might have been yeah.
0: more a bonus. Well, we have as a bonus episode. Yeah, about. yeah. But so
1: I remember doing. The camera work for Live at Five back in the day. And so it was in a different corner. It was really kind of neat how the studio was set up because one corner was Live at Five, one corner was the weather place, another corner was like the six and ten and morning show desk. And then you had the, in the other corner, you had the, the green screen for the, um, for the weather but yeah i remember i i spent many times uh behind the camera with Les or uh, jennifer when she was doing those of actually being the camera operator for those days so uh i had spent a lot of time it was pretty pretty neat and i remember they used to uh, uh they used to do crime stoppers like every, right. every tuesday or something like that you know yeah. what's
0: messed up is i don't believe they even have camera operators in person nope. anymore it's all they do digital they it's That's, all
1: it's all remote controlled now. Yep, yeah, you'd be in
0: you'll be in the the production room, not even in the same room now.
1: Yeah, and you're probably there's probably not even an employee for it anymore. It's probably
0: just the producer
1: doing it. Yeah, uh, but you're right. yeah, uh, so that that is a look at live five. Uh, that was the first five o'clock newscast, and it was pretty neat because. Uh, you know, we would always watch it. Uh, it was always on. Um, I think the competition was Wheel of Fortune at that time. Uh, or no, Jeopardy. Jeopardy was on at that time on K H
0: Yeah, Live at 5. Just just the, the how that comes off the tongue is boom. That became Perfect. the... That's the epitome of the news. If you like, let's turn on live at five. It's not turn on the news. Live at yep. five. Boom, boom. That literation is just Yeah. Yeah. That's money right there. Thank it God it wasn't so. like five thirty here. You could do more at four. More <laughs> at, at six. I mean that's just the yeah. news at six. Yeah. Seven yeah. is I can't think of a good rhyme for that. I don't
1: know. Hey Travis, are we ready to knock out this question of the day?
0: I don't have a good feel for it. So it, I'm not I don't have high expectations, but lay it lay it on me again. Maybe I'll have an epiphany here at the the eleventh hour.
1: All right, here we go. So here's your question of the day. The oldest bank that is still in existence today in Quincy. Okay. Here's your list. Is it First Bankers Trust, Mercantile Bank, State Street Bank, or Town and Country Bank? Travis, your thoughts.
0: I, My guess all depends on if it's on a technicality of a slight name change of a different entity. Okay. But I believe State Street Bank is the first. Is that your final answer? Yes. You would be correct. Was it State Savings and Loan?
1: It might have been. Okay. Uh, yeah, it may have been. And I apologize. I didn't keep the, the stats up. I went to their website. Look, they uh, first came to Quincy in 1890.
0: Oh, that's okay. that's they were early in the door. Yeah.
1: Yeah. However, I did find, uh, unfortunately, Town & Country Bank didn't have a start date for when they started. But right. I can tell you the other ones. Mercantile Bank in Quincy was 1906. So they weren't too far behind. About sixteen years later, and then First Bankers Trust was actually nineteen forty six.
0: That's some that's some good longevity though overall. Yeah, that's
1: good. so State Street Bank is the uh, oldest bank that is still in existence today. In Quincy, that's not beside a river. That is not the Quincy River Bank. That's right. <laughs> such such a dark, Travis. We talk about this uh, not because we are trying to get a, a mortgage for a house. already did that. That our new that's podcast. done. Well, you might
0: soon, but that's a whole other story. You
1: maybe, know. but uh, we're doing this for another reason. Because Travis, next episode. We are going to dive into something that I've wanted to practically since we've started this podcast. Really? We are going to talk about robberies in Quincy and specifically bank robberies. Bank robberies. there's a few that if you are maybe older than 35, you there's a few that you remember in the Quincy area that made national headlines.
0: Grab the Dillinger, tell your Bonnie, tell your Clyde. It's going to be a fun time. We're going to hit it from early to modern. It's gonna be fun. This is gonna be a fun one where we're both digging into the research, and uh, those always turn into fun episodes, Chris.
1: There, there's so much. I told Travis, I was like, "All right, Travis, you take everything before 1900. I'll take everything after 1900. And we'll see what we come up with." That's
0: right. No, this should be. A, it should be a great episode. And I look forward to it. To hold to hold everybody over, just to reiterate, check out the Patreon episode. We're gonna dive into a lot of additional details we didn't have time to get into today about the tragic event at the Walden Field in 1996. Anything we're forgetting, Chris? I don't think so. I think we're pretty much set to go.
1: So we appreciate you listening. And for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters, and you've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody.
0: Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing, and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bob Becraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy.